Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Plato's symposium as a literary composition consists in large part of seven main speeches, or seven not quite speeches, but at least blocks of text where a particular person is the one who you might say is the dominant figure. And the reason I say that is because in Socrates' portion, he doesn't play by the rules and give a speech as everybody before him has, but he engages in something a little bit different. But we'll get to that in a moment. I want to run through some of the basic points about the character, the style, and the content of their speeches. Before I do that, though, I I want to stress one point. When you first approach this text, it might appear as if the speeches are kind of happenstance. There's just this one first and that one next, and there's no necessary order to it. They just happen to wind up in a place where Socrates can bring things to a conclusion because he's a smart guy. But if you look at the speeches, you're going to see the themes from each being taken up, at least in part, by the subsequent speeches. So there is a reason why Plato has them in the order that he does. Phaedrus is, in some respect, criticized by Pausanias for not having gone far enough in discussing not just the goodness, but the badness of love. Pausanias is going to be criticized then by Eryximachus, who isn't even actually supposed to speak at that time, but Aristophanes conveniently gets a a bout of the hiccups, and that allows Eryximachus to to slip in there after giving him some medical advice. Eryximachus is going to say Pausanias didn't go far enough. Aristophanes is is actually going to sort of launch into his, his own thing. Agathon is going to come next, and Agathon himself will sort of like bring things back to a crux and say, all of you have been doing this when really you should have been doing this, and I'm about to do it myself. Socrates then comes after him. Socrates will always bring everybody else's themes in because he's going to ask questions. And then Alcibiades will bring things to an end with his speech that wasn't even supposed to be in there. But all of this hangs together as one composition with many different voices blended into it. So let's look at each of these voices in turn. Phaedrus, a young man, very attractive, upper class. He's uh, been able to study with some of the really bright minds, not only Socrates, but he uh, is friends or perhaps even lovers with Eryximachus, so he knows a little bit about, about medicine. He has studied with a sophist. He has not only Socrates as a friend, but also this guy Lysias, who's a speechwriter. So he's got sort of a melange of different influences coming in, but he's not really that developed. His speech is rather short, and in many respects, it's conventional. What he does is begins by praising love as being the most ancient in, the, in ancient Greece, Ancient meant something different than it does to us, but antiquity in that time was sort of a hallmark. You would say, well, you know, this is great because it's old, and he says that about love. Then he goes on and he praises love for its relationship to honor, how it brings out the best in those who are motivated by love. He does have one interesting striking image in there about the army or the city that would be composed entirely of lovers and therefore invincible in the field of battle. But that's actually a historical allusion to the sacred band of Thebes, most likely. 
So, you know, what we have in his, his speech are a bunch of really well put together phrases with the right footnotes added or the right references, the right citations. But he's not getting us to the heart of love. He is indeed praising love, but it's not clear that he has a comprehensive picture about what love is. He's managed to grasp certain aspects, but he hasn't gone far enough. And that's great for a starting point because then you can build upon that. And that's what Pausanias does. Pausanias is an older man. Pausanias is actually the lover of Agathon, whose house the party is at. As a matter of fact, their friendship relationship went on long past the, the time in which this would be expected to sort of come to a close. They appear to have been lifelong companions. Pausanias is going to bring a, a, a more keen analytical mind to things. He's interested in political phenomena. He's going to talk about the role that love plays, but he's going to make a very important distinction. And this is where we start to get a bit philosophical, right? Philosophy is in significant part about making distinctions when they're needed to be made, when other people aren't making them. And Pausanias is going to say, hey, Phaedrus, all the stuff that you're saying about the greatness of love, that's only one kind of love. There's also a bad kind of love as well, a bad kind of erotic desire. And that's what gets people into all these sorts of messes. And that's part of why this love relationship where you have an older figure and a younger figure is frowned upon because most people screw it up. But would it be possible not to screw it up? Pausanias is very interested in the laws or the customs, and he contrasts different peoples, different countries, different city-states against each other, arguing ultimately that the Athenian laws governing this are our best, but they're not quite where they should be. And so he's, he ends up turning what's supposed to be a discourse praising love into a discourse that's, in essence, giving legal advice and praising the lover, a lover of a certain sort. Eric Simicus is, uh, like I put here, he's a technical man. He is a medical doctor, and to be a medical doctor at that time really meant more than just focusing on the human body. You had to know about all sorts of other things, and he had a physicalistic count of things. He thinks that everything is a matter of elements which can be broken down, which can be harmonized, and he will take this notion of good and bad love and refigure it in terms of health, and disease. Healthy love, which is where there's a harmony between the opposite elements that need to function, whether they're hot and cold or wet and dry or fire and water or the parts of the human body or even the, the cosmos as a whole or musical notes. He's going to say we can understand love through the art of medicine. And I just happen to be the guy who can tell you all about that. In style, he's rather pedantic. There's certain things that come through much more in the Greek than they do in the translation. Plato has written it in such a way that when you're reading him, you can tell this guy, you know, he knows his stuff when it comes to his art, his techne. But he's not a very good speaker, and he just sort of throws everything together. He uses the S is P, you know, subject is predicate kind of constructions. The verb ani to be shows up in his section more than in anybody else's. You know, you remember back when you were a kid and you were told, don't just say something is doing something or something is something. Use an action verb instead. Ericsimachus doesn't do much of that. So his style reflects his clear belief that techne, that disciplinary knowledge is the way to make sense out of this crazy thing that we call love. And so in some ways, 
he tells a really interesting story about what we might do. But you might think that love as the force that we feel tends to get lost in there. Totally different story with Aristophanes. Aristophanes tells the tale, and like I put here, it's, it's a comic tale. Aristophanes is himself a comedian. That means he writes comic plays, of which, fortunately, we have quite a few preserved. So if you want to see what this guy is like, you can read his works. And they're pretty funny stuff. But it's also a tragic tale, because he's going to tell this mythical story about the way back time when human beings were originally very different than they are now. Instead of having one head and two arms and two legs and one set of genitals, they had twice as many because they were these round beings who would roll all over the place. And they got too big for their britches. Zeus, God, cuts them in half and has them sewn up around. There's a long story here. I'm not going to go into all the details. But what he's getting at with this is some sort of allegorical account about love as a desire to find the missing half of one's own self, that one, a human being, is not truly a full human being until they found their mate, the one who was originally separated from them. So love, loss, and a restoration of the lost unity, this desire to fuse with the other, that's what makes it a tragic tale. And Aristophanes also suggests if we get too big for our britches, maybe the gods will cut us in half again and make things even worse for us, although they are, by the end of his story, pretty bad. Agathon, it's at Agathon's house. Remember, he is the tragic playwright who has won the contest. He's a young, promising man, considered quite attractive, quite smart, very witty, very urbane. He is a great host, as we find out at the beginning. He also is not only, you know, writing from the perspective of, of tragic poetry, but has been influenced, it's very clear, by rhetoric, and specifically by the kind of rhetoric that this guy Gorgias, this master rhetorician, a sophist, had taught, because, you know, we see by the end of his speech him pulling out all the stops. It's like, you know, he has this rather measured approach at the beginning where things are set up with these wonderful parallelisms and he runs through this two-part argument that demonstrates irrefutably the both absolute beauty, the wonderfulness of love by appealing to certain characteristics, and then shows that love actually encompasses and dominates every single virtue, all the four cardinal virtues, justice, wisdom, temperance or moderation, and courage. By the end, he goes into this flowing passage of impassioned rhetoric that brings it to, to a close. This actually makes him fodder for Socrates' mill. And now we get into Socrates' portion. If you want to call this a speech, you have to acknowledge it has, it has two different parts to it. There's an important joining phase between them. At first, Socrates says, well, I can't talk like the rest of you guys. I just know how to do this dialectical questioning and answering. You know, I don't know if you'd be interested in that sort of thing, but let me see if I can do it. Let me, let me give it a try. And so everyone's like, yeah, okay, Socrates, yeah, that's what you do. And then he goes after Agathon, who's just given this wonderful speech and shows that Agathon doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. Gets them all turned around. Turns out that love is actually a lack. Love doesn't have beauty. Love is for beauty, which means that it's lacking the beauty that it desires. Love doesn't have virtue. Love desires virtue. Love desires this. Love desires that because love is a lack of what ought to be present or what could be present. Then we get into this passage 
where Socrates introduces another character. They sent the one woman in the dialogue, the flute girl who is you know, playing, essentially just a hired hand to provide some musical accompaniment. They sent her out. There aren't any other women in the dialogue. Socrates brings one in. And he doesn't just bring in some as like, you know, some woman as a date or hanging on his arm. He brings in the woman who's going to teach all of them about love because she actually knows all of this because she is a philosopher and a priestess and an instructrix in, in love who taught the young Socrates. So is it Socrates' speech or is it Diodemus' speech or is it both? Should we consider it just to be Plato's speech at this point? In any case, if we want to talk about the genre, it's a philosophical initiation. She is using dialectic, the back-and-forth questioning in parts of it. She is also unpacking the meanings of things, ranging from pregnancy to the attraction that we feel to production, and ultimately sketching out for us this ascent via love. Eros, love, becomes the way that we move not only towards beautiful bodies, beautiful souls, but even towards beautiful institutions, the virtues, and beyond that, something yet higher, something totally sublime, something that barely can be named, the form of beauty itself, a beauty that if we glimpse it for a moment, we will be unsatisfied with any other beauty. This is an initiation. This is not just a philosophical treatise with setting things out in nicely numbered paragraphs and providing footnotes. This is the way that philosophy sometimes does get done. And when it's done well, it's, it's really the best. Finally, we finish with the speech that wasn't supposed to happen, but which Plato brought into this. That's what the you know drunken Alcibiades, the sort of golden boy of Athens, at least at that moment, uh, he's going to fall from grace very soon, bursting in with his revelers and taking over the party. And he engages in this drunken praise, not of love, but of Socrates. And he tells an anecdote. Well, he tells several anecdotes about Socrates, but the most central anecdote is about how Socrates can't be seduced. Socrates is, in a certain sense, above ordinary physical love and the, the traps that we fall into. So he has this discussion of Socrates as sort of like these, these ugly, sadder dolls that you open up and you find a golden treasure inside. Socrates literally is the ugly guy with a great personality. That's what Alcibiades is, is spelling out for us. So it's fitting that after Socrates has just brought in this wonderful discourse about the nature of love that manages to touch on and bring in all this other stuff, that we should have somebody coming in to talk about how Socrates himself figures into love. So that is the content in very bullet point terms of these great speeches. And you can see that there's a progression. You can also see that each one of these persons represents not just themselves as a character, but you might say a type of human being, not only in what they think, but also in what they say, and most importantly, in the style in which they express it. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.